Let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we gather together tonight, we thank you for this opportunity to come uh, together before you and before your word to, um, to learn more of what you've accomplished for us and the love that you've shown us in the sending of your son. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us understanding, that you would work in our minds and in our hearts so that we might receive these words from the Gospel of John with faith and believing in your Son might find that life everlasting. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to persevere in this faith, even as we have believed in him. May we hold fast to these truths for the rest of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to look at John chapter 10 tonight again, as we, we were last week. So turn to John 10. Um, I'm going to read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. We're going to spend the uh, bulk of our time looking at verses 22 through 39. Um, and there's really, there's two statements in here, two really extraordinary statements that Jesus makes that I want to put a lot of emphasis on, but we do need to understand them within their broader context. And I also want to understand them within the logic of John's presentation through the whole of his gospel. We're really continuing from our study last week where we looked at the first half of this chapter and considered Jesus' testimony concerning himself in that Good Shepherd discourse. And here we're going to come to a second related discourse um, where Jesus is going to take up some of the same thoughts. Here in John 10, verse 19, after the Good Shepherd discourse, we find there was a, again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At the t that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, I noted that there were two rather extraordinary Christological statements in this text. The first we find in verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, referring to the unity that he, uh, his unity with the Father, his union with the Father, that he and the Father are, at least in some sense, they're one. And then there's the second one, which is in verse 38, where he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And that helps to explain the nature of that union, the nature of that oneness. 
It has to do with a mutual indwelling. But we also see evidence that in spite of the unity, there is still that distinction that we've talked about in weeks past, a distinction between the Father and the Son. And that idea, that truth, is preserved through language uh, like sending and uh, going and, and, and giving and receiving. It's the Father who sends. It's the Father who gives. It's the Son who goes. It's the Son who receives. There is this relationship conveyed, and we see that then expressed in the um, in, in the way in which uh, the Son himself acts in becoming incarnate and becoming a man. But we have those two great Christological statements, and those, um, those incite the audience. They, when Jesus makes these claims, obviously in the context we see uh, that they, they, wanna, they wanna kill him, they wanna arrest him, they wanna at least rough him up a little because um, they accuse him of blaspheming in the first case. And uh, in the second case, they just want to silence him. They, 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 you know, along the same lines, for blasphemy. And Jesus has to deal with this. He has to. Uh, he's, he's going to show them that their arguments are wrong. But in order to understand the logic of his argument, we need to step back and, and look a bit more broadly in John's gospel. And I want to. The case I want to make to you from John's gospel is that we should understand the relationship between a son and a father just this is true you know no matter what the relationship between a son and a father between a messenger and a sender um, that that it's conveyed that truth of that relationship is conveyed by one's works let me put it another way a son represents his father by his works and a messenger represents his sender by his testimony and his works Therefore, if Jesus is the Son of God who is sent by the Father as the Christ, his works should attest to this relationship, right? We have two different designations here, or two different titles we can look at here. We have the, the title of the Son of God, and we have the title of the Christ. And in the first instance, this has to do with the relationship, the unique relationship that Christ has to the Father, the Son has to the Father, and we should expect him to be like his Father in some particular ways, when that, uh, with respect to the works that he performs, we should expect there to be a certain um, similarity in his works, between his works and the Father's works. You could put it this way by way of analogy. Uh, in his humanity, he is regarded as the son of Joseph, the son of the carpenter, and so Jesus is also by trade a carpenter. He does that which his father did. He took up his father's trade. Uh, Today, we don't, that's not so much part of our culture. Back then, it was very much a part of the culture. If your father was the king, you were in line to be the king. Or if you weren't the firstborn, then at least a prince or something like that. If your father was a stonemason, then you were going to end up being a stonemason. Today, it's more like um, if your father has certain mannerisms, certain actions that he typically performs. He, he walks with a certain gait. He has certain idiosyncrasies. Uh, you probably have the same. Um, just by nature of being his son. There's a relationship there that is conveyed, that is evidenced by those actions. But Jesus is also the Christ, and that points to, that's a title that points to his humanity as the coming son of David. Here we're looking at him on a, from a different perspective in his humanity, not his deity, but as the coming son of David who would reign forever over a Davidic kingdom as the Christ, as the anointed uh, king that the Father has appointed to reign over that earthly kingdom. And as the Christ, we also expect that there's a certain congruity between uh, the works of, of the Son, uh, the works of, 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 of Jesus, and his, um, his status as the Christ as one sent by God. And just, so now you, here you think about a messenger. If, if someone sends out a messenger to present a message or to present some, um, something of himself, there's an expectation that the messenger has, uh, it, 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 he accurately conveys the message. You can think of a prophet sent by God. If that prophet is to represent God, he, he has to really say what God has given him to say. You think of a king who is sent by God to reign over his people, whether it's David or Solomon or uh, we come all the way down to Jesus as the Christ. We expect him to reign in a way that is patterned after God's rule and reign in the world. 
And if he's to demonstrate that he really is anointed by and sent by God, then we expect there to be that congruity between his, um, his works and, and, uh, and you know, his sender. Um, his works ought, ought to be evidence. His testimony and works should evidence that he really is sent by and appointed by God. This is the logic, then, that we're going to see. And I want to um, point out here that in this text, Jesus plainly declares this. This is, this is the, the, the uh, crucial aspect of his argument throughout the text. So look at verse 25 and 26, for instance, chapter 10. Jesus answered them. They just asked him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? So the focus is on, not on, are you the son of God? That's not entering their mind. Their focus is, are you the Christ? We want to know if you're that, if you're that guy that we're waiting for, the son of David. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Now we say, well, how did he tell them? Did, can we find a place earlier in John's gospel where Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Christ, guys. We can't find that. He's going to go on to explain how he's told them plainly. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He'll go on to say, talk about how my sheep do hear my voice and they respond and they believe. But here we have this understanding as they're saying, the reason why we haven't yet believed essentially is because you haven't given us a very clear declaration you haven't said, hey, just so that you know and so we're all clear and on the same page, I'm the Christ. He says, that's not the reason you haven't believed. It's not, you know, I've told you plainly and you don't believe. There are people who have believed. They're my sheep. They hear my voice. You're not my sheep. You don't hear my voice. That's why you haven't believed. It, you don't, it's not because you need a plainer declaration. You've got what you need, but you're not my sheep. We're going to see that then as, as, we, as we go forward in verse 27 and 28 as well, where he talks about, he, he gives an example of how his work points to his identity. And now he actually, he's going to turn the focus away from his identity as the Christ to his identity as the Son of God. Look at verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And we reflect on earlier, we had the Good Shepherd discourse that we looked at last week, where that was a major theme in that, that idea of him being the Good Shepherd, the, good, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, they follow, they won't follow a stranger, that kind of language and, and uh, discussion. So we're picking up with that idea again. And it goes on in verse eight, 28 and says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, this is an extraordinary statement. Jesus doesn't say God gives them eternal life. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. There's a positively stated and negatively stated. I give my sheep eternal life. My, my sheep will never perish. Let me just quickly remind you what he said in John chapter 5 in a discourse we looked at a couple weeks ago. In John chapter 5, um, here we're looking at uh, verse 20, uh, 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So we, we're starting to see a correspondence here between Father and Son. Where the Father has life in himself, we saw that in chapter 5. So he has granted the son to have that same self-existent life, life in himself. And that's the basis for what he said in chapter 5, verse 25, about how an hour is coming when the dead in the tombs, they'll hear the voice of the Son of God, and they'll, they'll rise. They'll, they'll be raised from, uh, from the dead. They'll come back to life. Because he is able to give life as the one who has life in himself. We see a very similar idea here in verse 28. When it talks about a sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, right? So not only does he give them this life everlasting, and does he protect them from uh, losing, from, from, from going into perdition, from perishing in any way, but no one can overcome him in that effort. So, you know, so to, to go even to the evil one, to, to the devil. The devil cannot come and snatch the sheep out of the hand of the good shepherd, out of the hand of the son. 
And I think I, I was just listening to a podcast on my way here that was talking about David and Goliath, and um, they were just describing an earlier pass, or, uh, the part where David goes before Saul, and Saul, and uh, he says to Saul, Saul's like, look, you're too young to fight this guy, Goliath. You're, you know, you're a youth, and he's been a man of war since his youth. And David's response is, look, when I, when I was a shepherd keeping the sheep of my father, and a lion or a bear would grab the sheep, I would take that lion by the beard and strike it and take the sheep back out of its mouth, right? You think of that picture of David as a shepherd. Even a lion or a bear could not take the sheep out of his hands, could not snatch them from under his sight. He would go and he would do what it was necessary to defeat that powerful animal. That's his argument to say, um, through the Lord's strength, I'm going to do the same thing to Goliath. Now we have this picture of Jesus, and we're talking about something much greater magnitude, not just sheep being saved from lions, but figuratively, human beings who put their faith and trust in Christ can anything or anyone ever overcome that? Can anything and anyone ever um, uh, uh, keep the, the son from delivering his sheep from, uh, from death? No. No one can snatch them out of his hands. Is he a testimony to his work? You know, we've talked about his work from the perspective of him going to the cross and dying for our sin, but this is also a part of his work as preserving his own, keeping his own, being the shepherd for his people, that he preserves his own faithful to the end. And even the, the devil cannot overcome the Son of God. So he talks about what he can accomplish there. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But we're going to see in verse 29, this has a direct relation to his status as the Son of God, his relationship to the Father. And it, it actually, this truth speaks to that relationship. Look at verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you, what you're seeing there is the, 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 this, the work that the Father does, he also gives to the Son, and the Son does the same thing. So that it's really one work being accomplished by Father and Son together. The Father, who is greater than all, that is, it, you know, I, I think that the sense here is that he is, um, uh, you know, any, anyone who would come against the Father and the Son and seek to, seek to snatch out of their hand these sheep, us, believers. Anyone who would come and, and seek to counteract or destroy the work of, of, of God can't, can't be done. He's greater than all. What he's going to do, he's going to do. And no one's going to overcome that work. My Father is greater than all. There is a point that later in the Gospel where Jesus will say, I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than me. I think that, um, without getting too deep in the weeds, I think that he's speaking that in the sense of his humanity. That in the sense of his incarnation, he has taken on the form of a servant, and he's looking, you know, he, in that context, he's um, chastising his disciples because they're, they're kind of upset that he says, I'm going away, and he says, you, you should be happy for me. If you love me, you'd be happy because I'm going to the Father. I'm going to, I, you know, to put it in, in language he'll use later is, I'm going back to the glory that I had before. So I don't think that this, this well, I certainly don't believe this statement indicates or this statement or that statement indicates some kind of inferiority of the son. Somehow that the father, the son is not equal to the father in terms of his essence. Um, but but the father is greater than all. He says um, in this context, referring to like all those who might seek to undo the work of the father. And no one is able to snatch the sheep out of the father's hand. And the father has given the sheep to the son, and no one can snatch them out of the son's hand. What is this saying about the Father and the Son? It's, there, there's a, there is an equality there that is conveyed by the work, uh, by his preserving work. The way in which he preserves his people demonstrates his claims that he is the Son of God, that he is equal with the Father. And as he's going to put it then here in verse 30, I and the Father are one. That this is a, this is a, a, a complete and perfect unity between Father and Son. And the evidence then is in the works and uh, the way in which his works mirror the works of the Father. The distinction, of course, is clear because there's a giving, right? The Father has given them to me. Um, 
you know, he giving and receiving. Um, but there's also that unity, and I think that's a, that's important to see how the works testify to that point. So, the preserving work of the Son uh, and the Father testifies to that the fact that they are that the Father and the Son are one. Now, skipping a, a bit ahead, we'll come back to some of these verses, but skipping a bit ahead to verse 37 and 38, then we're going to see another testimony to the way in which the works of the Son testify to his relationship to the Father. Here, um, to give you again a little bit of context, I did skip over a bit. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Jews are upset with Jesus for saying these things because he makes himself equal with God. We'll come back to that argument in a bit, but um, he is going to make the case that uh, this, is not a, this is not a wrong argument. And he's going to point them back to the question of his works. Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So here he speaks of his unity with the father in terms of that indwelling, the mutual indwelling. He is in the Father, the Father is in him. And how can we know that? How can the people who are challenging him know that? Well, they don't believe his testimony, even though he said it. He says, okay, fine, you don't want to believe what I'm saying. If you don't want to believe me, fine. Believe the works. Look at the works. Do the works testify to the fact that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Am I doing the Father's work? So they're not going uh, to accept that argument. Obviously, they'll seek to arrest him. But I do want you to just see how Jesus, the case that he's making, that it really rests upon the nature of his works. And it's not just a matter of, I'm doing great and awesome deeds. I'm doing great miracles. So you should just say, okay, he must be telling the truth, right? It's, it's, it's the nature of the works themselves. There's something about the quality and nature of those works that, you could not ascribe those works to a mere man. He is a man, but he's more than a man. That they are works that are the unique um, work of the Father. This um, Earlier this week, I've been looking a bit at um, Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, just to get ready for some future teaching, and I've uh, been studying that rather deeply, and just observing in that text how ev almost every single sentence is, uh, has God as the subject, and God is doing some kind of creative action. And the, the main verb there is God created the heavens and the earth. But then there are all these other verbs, seven other actions that God performs in the context of creating the world. Most, uh, mostly he speaks. Every single day begins with, and God said. And God said, and he, he calls something into being, or he, he commands something in some way. But he does other things in, in the creation account, like um, uh, he, he separates things. He separates uh, waters from waters via an expanse, and he, he separates light from darkness, and he, he names things. He calls things, you could say. He calls light day, and he calls darkness night. He calls um, uh, the expanse heaven and so forth. He, um, he forms things. We have, the, or you could, the, the verb maybe make or do, but he forms things. Um, he sees things, and he sees that they're good. You know, you just keep seeing these same seven verbs repeatedly over and over again. Now, some of those things you see are very distinct to God. They're things that only God does. In fact, that the word in Hebrew for create is bara. And uh, uh, I looked in Genesis. I, I've heard this. I've not verified it myself, but I've, I've heard that nowhere at all in the Old Testament do we see Anyone but God is the subject of a sentence with that verb. Only God ever bara, only God ever creates in that sense. Someone might make something like a tabernacle or a house, but they don't create. There's a sense of out of nothing creation. God does that only. But there are other things in the creation account where God does something and then he calls upon his creatures to act in the self same way. Here's an example God calls the the, day, the, the light day, and he calls the night darkness. Then you see in Genesis 2, Adam, God brings all the animals before Adam to see what he will call them. And whatever they, he calls them, 
That is their name. And so he gives to Adam some kind of task whereby he delegates something that he does. And here, Adam is an image bearer of God. Adam is a son of God in a sense. And he is bearing the image of God by doing things that God does. No animal gets to name other animals. Only Adam gets to call things uh, by a name. And here he's doing something that first God did. Of course, Adam doesn't get to create out of nothing. That's something that God does not, uh, that he, he, he uh, preserves to himself. As we saw in John 1, that's something that the Son, that the Word, you know, uh, the Word made flash that he did. God created, um, uh, anyway. So you see this kind of idea here of um, creating, uh, of, of, of the works of the Father and the doing the, the things that the Father does. The fact that the Son can do some of those things and the fact that he does those things that qualitatively are um, things that only God can do uh, even, you know, you know, not just, it's not just he does some of the things that God does, like delegated authority, like Adam calls the animals by their names. He creates out of nothing. We saw that in John, in John 1. And the, the key example throughout the rest of the gospel is he gives life. Adam never gives life in that eternal life-giving sense. He gives life to his son in the sense that he begets him. But he, he doesn't give him eternal life. In fact, he gives him death. So we can see from Romans. So you, can, you start to see some of these ways in which Jesus shows himself to be the son of the father. Um, now, as we see, there's a very negative example in John 10 in the sense that the people are rejecting it. But he's going to make the same case to his disciples. And John's going to make the same case to us as readers. In John 14, verse 8 and following, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here, Philip, in, this, in the upper room before Jesus is going to go to the cross, Philip's, okay, show us the Father. We, we, you know, it's enough for us. That's all we want now. It's just show us the Father. And Jesus' answer is, you, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> what do you think I've been doing? Um, the point is, is you don't see the Father in terms of his physical form. But you do see his character displayed in the Son of God, in his incarnate form. You see the love of God. You see the glory of God. You see the holiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the case he's making. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We have that same line that we read in chapter 10, that the being in the Father and the Father being in him, that mutual indwelling. And again, he says, look, in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Right? Look at the things that I've done and contemplate those works. And that's what Jesus said to his disciples. If we look at John 20 at the very end of the gospel, we see that John will say the same thing to us. As readers of this gospel, in John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says that the reason I've written this gospel, this is his habit, we saw it in the first epistle. Towards the end of the, the writing, he tells us, here's why I've written the reason he's written the gospel is so that we might believe that Jesus is two things, the Christ and the Son of God. We have Those are the two things that we're kind of putting on the, uh, that are the, the subject of our inquiry. When we talk about Christology, we want to know who is this person? Who is he? And the answer is he's the Christ and he's the Son of God with all that that entails. And how does John 
lead us to this conclusion that we believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and so believing, then find life in his name? The answer is by giving us this book that shows to us the signs of the Son of God, so that seeing the signs, we might believe. You see the logic then throughout John's gospel is very much the same in Jesus' discourse, his own arguments, in his teaching to his disciples in the upper room, in John's uh, explanation of the whole gospel. So you step back and you say, well, what signs? What, what are we talking about here with signs and works? And I'll just briefly go through them. Just to, There's a sense where it seems that John is uh, presenting to us seven signs in the first half of the gospel, and then one final climactic sign. There, there's some debate about how to number the signs, and I, don't, I think that's a bit in the weeds and not really uh, a productive debate. But we can count seven miracles in the first half of the gospel, I think is the key. And then we see one more sign act that Jesus performs. Um, the reason why we count them is because the first two are, are numbered. But, um, so, for instance, the first instance, Jesus turns water into wine. There in, in John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And in verse 11, it says, this is this, the first of his signs. The key, that word signs is a key word. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He showed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so we understand that that first miracle that John records is the first manifestation of, of the glory of the Son, the first sign by which he showed who he was, bringing his disciples to believe. The second sign is also numbered. It's when he goes back to Cana in Galilee, and he heals the son of an official, a man uh, very similar to other accounts um, from the Synoptic Gospels, with some differences that suggest it's a different event. But a man comes and says, my son's sick, come to my house and heal him. And this is at the end of chapter 4, in verse 46 through 54. And Jesus heals the, man, the boy from a distance. Your son will live, and, and the man believes in all his household. So, verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea and Galilee. So you have those first two signs. The next few signs aren't numbered we can observe them and count them. The next one, he heals a, a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. That's in the beginning of chapter 5, the first 17 verses. And then he feeds five, the 5,000, an account in all four Gospels. The beginning of chapter 6, in those first 15 verses. And then at verse 16 of that same chapter and following, he walks on water, something only seen by his disciples. And then in chapter 9, he comes... Um, uh, he, he comes upon a man who is uh, blind from birth, and he heals that man on the Sabbath day. And, and uh, we see then the sixth miracle, and then the final, uh, in the first half anyway, the climactic um, sign, the climactic miracle, is in chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, but there, at the end of all of that, we're going to see um, some believe on account of the signs but many fail to believe uh, in spite of all the signs. You see in verse 37 of chapter 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so on and so forth. So you see how important the signs are to the structuring of, of the gospel, and how they, uh, and you see examples of him giving life to the dead, giving sight to the blind, and r r the words ring in our ears when people say, can demons do that? And the answer is no. Demons don't do that. They don't give sight to the blind. He walks on water, which is something in the Old Testament that that's, a, that's something that God does. He walks on the, on the, um, uh, on the, on the seas. And, and uh, multiplying bread in the wilderness, once again, that's something God does for Israel in, um, in um, the Exodus. Uh, making lame, the lame walk is something Isaiah prophesied that the Lord himself would do in the midst of his saving work. You can see how those works then correspond to divine prerogatives, correspond to the works of the Father. And uh, we have plus one then. There's one final sign. Anyone want to guess what it might be? The final sign in the Gospel of John. Yeah, and, I, and here I... I take um, the death and resurrection together as a single sign, uh, his, death, his own death and resurrection. Think of um, a couple texts in John, John chapter 2. After he cleanses the temple, 
in the beginning of this gospel. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So you see how he points to his resurrection, as, as Stephen suggested, as an answer to their question, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And the ultimate conclusion to that, that, that is that when he actually does this, his disciples remember it, and they believe on account of the sign. But later, then in John chapter 3, when he's there with Nicodemus in verse 14 and 15, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This, has this, this is talking about him being lifted up on the cross, and it has a sign quality to it, because the analogy, the, 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 the bronze serpent was lifted up so that people could look at it as like a sign, that they might look and believe and have eternal, not eternal life in that case, but be healed and uh, live after the serpent bite. And uh, in this case, the, the, you know, we, we don't look upon the Son per se, but we look upon him with the eyes of faith and believe and receive eternal life. And there's this sign, this, this um, one single sign, if you will. There are other texts we could look at, but I'll, I'll leave them out. One here I'll, I will mention in chapter 10 itself, since it's our subject of study. In chapter 10, the way he speaks about the whole event of his death and resurrection as a single, as a single act that demonstrates who he is. For this reason, the Father loves me. This is verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So the Son, in laying down his life and taking it up again, that whole event is a sign that finally and, and, and most clearly uh, demonstrates who he is. He is the Son of God incarnate, as we've been looking at these past several weeks. Now let me, let's go back to, let's look back at this text then, and, and some things I want to talk about to kind of draw the, the logic of the argument finally to a close. Um, we're seeing the, the clear idea that Jesus is making is that my works make it clear who I am, right? If you don't believe on account of the works, it's not because it's not plain. It's because you're not, my, you're not of my sheep. You don't hear my voice. You don't understand. Because if you were of my flock, if you were my sheep, then you would recognize my voice. That's the argument. But let's look then at verse 31 and following again. After he, the first instance where he says, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So we have the reference to works again that he's done. They're from the Father. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understand what he's claiming. When he says, I and the Father are one, he's claiming to be God. They get it, and he knows it, and he, he's not denying that. But they're not understanding what he's saying about the works, right? We've, we've already established that the works are the same works as the Father. They're seeing it as good works, right? They're not... They're not picking up on that idea. They, we're not stoning you for a good work, right? The good works aside, they're not rightly interpreting the works then. And so he says, um, uh, so they, they say, we're stoning you for blasphemy. Now, in their logic, it, he's a man. Jesus is a man. That's actually really a crucial recognition in the, for Christians, to recognize that the Son of God became a man. That's a crucial aspect of our confession, our Christological understanding of who he is. He truly and really is fully human. He's not pretending to be a human. He's not faking being a human. He's not part human. He's not uh, incompletely human. He's fully man. And that's not something that he... Is, in eternity past, he was not fully man. He has always been God and always will be. But from the incarnation, from the time he's conceived and for forever now into the future, he always will be fully man. One person who has in himself two natures. They recognize the human nature. What they're, so here's the logic of the denial. They deny that a man can be God. 
One who is fully man cannot be God. That's the claim he's making. He's fully man. And so he's first going to deal with that by showing them that that logic does not follow from Scripture. That Scripture does not allow them to simply, on that basis alone, rule out his claims. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? I'll go back to Psalm 82 to understand this argument. It's, a, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater in some sense. It's a, it's, it's a bit more complex than that. You can't reduce it just to that. But there is an element of, you know, there's a lesser to the greater element to it that we'll see. In Psalm 82, here's that verse in context that he cites from. from there, he says, from your law. 82, and I'm going to read the whole thing because it's rather short. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That, that first text is probably um, uh, the gods in lowercase g, that is somehow a reference to angelic beings. Uh, that would be the divine council in, um, as, uh, as the Old Testament depicts it. Well, in any case, we go on from there. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Here he seems to be addressing Israel. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And I think what the, the one thing you need to see in those, verse, those four verses is the complaint. that the, the one who is just, who judges all justly, has, is calling to account Israel, his people, and particularly their rulers, because they failed to execute justice in their governance. They're not, they're not ruling the way that they should if they are God's people. Okay? They don't have knowledge. They don't have understanding. They walk about in darkness. And so he goes on to say in verse 6, I said you are God's sons of the Most High. So that second clause, which Jesus doesn't quote the full thing, just says, I said you are God's, but we should, I think, understand the whole context is, is in his mind. That, that, that second phrase kind of qualifies the first phrase, that you are gods, with that lowercase g, sons of the Most High, that is like children of God. Israel was called to be children of God. That doesn't mean that they are divine. It means that they are to be like God. And we're, we're, we're working on this, this framework, this understanding of a son is like his father. If God has designated has said he says i said you are gods meaning i've, I've designated you as children my children the sons of the most high you need to act like it all of you he says nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince in other words they failed to uphold the justice that would be um consistent with being a son of god and they're going to uh perish the way as men perish they're going to go the way of all flesh and um they're not going to enjoy the privileges, if you will, of being a son of God. And then there's a final call in that psalm. Arise, O God, judge the earth. A, a final call for God to intervene and bring about the justice that men are failing to bring about. So here what Jesus is saying is, is he, he's destroying the argument that is brought against him. They're saying, you're a man, therefore it's illegitimate under any circumstance for you to say you're the son of God. For you to, to, to make yourself equal with God. And he says, well, here's a biblical example where he said to those to whom the word of God came, that is, those men who received the word of God, I said you are gods, right? So it can't be, it, it can't be this law, this rule, that it's always illegitimate to say of a human being that you're a son of God in some respect. Obviously, in some respect, the Israelites were called children of God. So you look at the law, you say, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and then scripture cannot be broken. It can't, in other words, it can't be false. Like we, just, we have this going in assumption. It's God's word. It's true. Then, here's the, that, so there's the lesser. Now we're going to go to the greater. 
he has presented himself and shown himself to be the one that was anointed by God. We remember the spirit resting upon him at, jo- at the baptism by John. We remember the declaration from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember all the indications that he has sent into the world. He's not one who is just a man who is born in the world without having been first sent. He is one who is sent into the world, uh, you know, who came into the world, uh, you know, um, the, the birth, in other words, his birth is not his beginning. And so he's sent into the world. So how can you say of me, that, that this greater situation, that I'm blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Then he points them back to the works. The real area where you need to make a judgment about these things is by evaluating the works that I am doing. Look at what I'm doing. If I'm doing the works of the Father, then believe on account of the works. If I'm not, then don't believe. So we ought to do the same thing. Those, orig- those first hearers in chapter 10, they don't respond very well to that argument. But as we've seen, John presents that argument to us as readers too. We ought to go back, and as, as I went through those seven signs and then the final sign, we look at that and say, yes, yes indeed, that is consistent with one who has life in himself. That is consistent with one whose claims are, I am the Son of God. There are some applications for us as well to draw this to a close. We are also called into a relationship with God as children of God. We're called through faith in Christ to be children of God. So there's something that's incumbent upon us. There is the will of God for us as uh, in one case we could be called, uh, we're called in John children of God. In other cases, sons of light. meaning that we should act in a way that's consistent with light. The one who, God is light, and if we're children of light, we should act in a way that's consistent with that. It's different for us than it is for Christ, of course. In his case, he does things that we will never do. He has life in himself, and we will never have such life in ourselves. But Jesus says quite clearly in a a, a number of contexts um, that the will of God for us is that we believe in the one whom he sent. This is the work of God for us. So if we're to live like children of God, it means believe what he's showing us, what Christ is showing us about himself. That is what makes someone a child of God. Now, having given that application, I'm just going to bring this whole study to a conclusion then. What we've been looking at, what we've been thinking about in, in terms of this, as we think about Christology, is who Jesus is, we know the answer. I think that we've, we've known this for many years, but we're, we're, we're really trying to see how we know that this is, to, this is true. We've seen from John's gospel that it's not something that was just given to us in creeds 300 years after Christ's coming, and we just say, I'm sure those guys were right. The creeds are good, and I affirm those creeds, that the, things like the um, Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition, that they do, they do convey accurately the teaching of Scripture, when it comes to the person and work of Christ. But what we're trying to, what we, what we've seen, is is the that truth that that um, that knowledge, those things that we confess, they arise really from Scripture, and we've shown that from John's Gospel, that that uh, Jesus in His coming did demonstrate Himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to give His life, to atoning sacrifice for our sins, and to rise so that all through all who believe in him will have eternal life. That sums up the basis, basic teaching of, of, uh, Christian, uh, of Christology, of what we believe about Christ. And the reason we've come to believe this, I mean, so, some in our day and, and for many years now would argue that this is not really attested very clearly in Scripture, although it will say, uh, make absurd statements like, uh, none of the Gospels except the Gospel of John uh, uh, suggest that Jesus is, is God and uh, well they're not sheep and they don't hear God, Christ's voice but what they're looking for is very explicit statements like those people who came to Jesus in this moment and said if you're the Christ tell us plainly they're looking for explicit statements and they say if you're the, if you're the son of God tell us plainly and uh, we're not going to be satisfied with just finding it in John's gospel we really need to see it in Matthew, Mark and Luke what I'm saying is that Jesus does say it plainly, but he also shows it in a way that's very plain. And we need to see the logic of, in, of how it's presented for
before us in Scripture. In other words, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all the New Testament writers don't need to come out and say in every place, you know, in the, very explicitly, uh, you know, the way you read it in the Creed. But what, did, what do they present? What's the logic that we've seen here and, and elsewhere? These claims are attested by reliable witnesses. Prophets, eyewitnesses like the disciples, the Father himself, we say, we think of prophets like Moses and, and, and John the Baptist, all sharing one common testimony concerning Christ and who he is. He declared it himself, and that testimony was confirmed by his works. So all of this testimony is corroborated by multiple trustworthy and reliable witnesses, and we on that basis are encouraged to believe. Of course, we have the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit who testifies in our hearts as well, who affirms to us the truth of these things as we hear them, that these things really are so. If we are God's children, if we are Christ's sheep, then we will hear his voice as the Spirit testifies to us that this is true. So let me close it there. Let me ask if um, there are any questions or comments at the close of this study. Um, any thoughts or, or any, anything? What equals that he's still the leader, Scott? Um, he's still the leader. Uh, what do you mean by that? He's saying he's in, he's still in it. Yeah. He's still in the church. I want to go there. Yeah. He gave Jesus turned his back on him when he was on the cross. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that there's, there's a way that we could use, you could use that language, but what you're saying, I think, is, is right. Uh, to be precise, I wouldn't use the language of he's the leader as, um, but, you know, he is the, or, you know, when, when we think about uh, God in his eternal nature, we talk about the Son um, proceeding from the Father as one who is begotten. Eternal, and, it, and this is an eternal begetting. It's not something that begins or ends. It's always the case. He's always begotten. So there's always a, a quality of fromness. It's a weird, awkward language, but it's true. There's always this quality of fromness. And we see reflected in that send, sender and sent, uh, giver and, and receiver, uh, you know, um, that kind of thing. If that's what you mean, that's what you mean by that kind of language. Yes. It doesn't, n none of that conveys, none of that conveys, as you, as you affirmed, a superiority or inferiority. Because uh, that, that's an, it's an on, the, the, the big word is ontological, or in, in terms of his essential being. The son is fully equal to the father. There's no, uh, it's not like the father is the greatest and then the son and the, and the spirit are down here. Uh, no, we don't affirm that. We affirm the full equality of nature. And yet in the relationship and the, in the, in the, the demonstration of that relationship, there is this um, quality of, of one who sends and one who is sent. If, if that's uh, that's kind of what you're you're getting at, so yes, but um, I, I wouldn't use that language of, of leader, but more of uh, let's use the language of father and son. You know, that's what we're given to best explain the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity. One is father, one is son.